Well, church family, that fun little video kicks off our new sermon series for the next four weeks. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy. So take your Bibles and turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And of course, Siri knows a lot of things. But Siri doesn't know everything, as I remind my children quite often. And so we're going to look at those things that really matter to the heart of God. Uh, Deuteronomy is a passage given, a book of the Bible given to God's people at a critical time in their history, just like it's a critical time and a critical juncture in the life of the church. We would love your help, uh, especially if you're a parent or a grandparent. Our next-gen team has put together a survey. Uh, So if you text that word survey to our favorite number, 623-623, Uh, There's a quick little five-minute survey that's going to help our next-gen team target uh, some of the things we do in the future. Give us some helpful information. Uh, Let me give a disclaimer. Please do not do that right now while I'm preaching. Uh, But uh, there's a link in your eConnect as well to that if you forget what the word is and the number to text, all those those things. Uh, But uh, this is really important. Uh, to the life of our church. It's foundational for us. And, you know, part of the reason why is because I came of age during a time in ministry in which there was a lot of what I'd call youth group activity. There were constant camps, retreats, concerts, events. We built this little Christian subculture. And because attendance at church among young people was at an all-time high, we thought we were doing a good job discipling a generation. But as we'll talk about, we missed some things. I have a little story that illustrates this principle. So back in my early days of youth ministry, when I first came to Brentwood Baptist Church, my wife and I were asked to share at a conference. It was over at Gatlinburg in Pigeon Forge. It was during Christmas break. Now, being from Illinois, we had no idea that the entire southeastern United States descends on Gatlinburg during that week between Christmas and New Year's. And so before we had smartphones that would tell you just what the traffic delays were, uh, we timed it just wrong. Uh, And we pulled up at the conference center where I was supposed to preach about 15 minutes before I was supposed to go on the platform. So I rush in, I give my talk, it did not go well. Kids were there obviously to have a good time, not to hear a preacher. I was just discombobulated. And so I slumped in a chair at the back of the room and I was like, all right, breathe deep, we'll reset for tomorrow. Well, my buddy who was leading the conference got up to say, we've got a game, a late night activity. It's called Counselor Scavenger Hunt, one of these youth group games. So the counselors would go hide in all of the shops and alleys in downtown Gatlinburg. And then the kids in their small group would go find these counselors. The way that they would prove that they found them was the counselors would sign the back of their programs. And so uh, the leader in a moment of spontaneity looked at me and said, and Jay and his family, they're the bonus team. They're worth like 10,000 points. And I was like, oh man, come on, right? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't want to be hounded by kids. And so uh, the game started. The counselors went out. The kids went out. And I turned to my wife and I said, let's just go check into the hotel. We won't participate, right? They won't miss us. I know kids. They'll be distracted eating ice cream and pizza, right? And in the little shops, they won't really care about this game. So we got checked in and the clock was ticking. The game was supposed to last an hour. And at about the 45, 50 minute mark, we'd settled in our room and my wife said, you know what, it'd be good to go for a little walk, stretch our legs, get a little fresh air before we go to bed. So we bundled Eliza up. She was about two years old at the time, put her in the stroller and we stepped out into downtown Gatlinburg at night. Now, if you've been to Gatlinburg, you will know there's this Y downtown where everything converges, right? And there's this constant steady stream of people and cars and everything going on. Unknown to us, all of these kids really got into this game. So they were on a mad dash trying to find us in downtown Gatlinburg because they'd found all the other counselors. And so as we walked off of the crosswalk, stepped onto the sidewalk, all of a sudden we heard it. That sound that only a pack of junior high girls can make, right? The scream, oh, there they are, 
right? You know, and here they came running to us. Oh, you found us. We're hiding in plain sight right here on the sidewalk. You know, that was our plan all along. And so we begin to sign their programs, right, to prove that they found us. And then what always follows junior high girls? Junior high boys. But it's the other end of the sonic spectrum, right? It's grunts. There they are. And a few haven't gone through puberty yet. So there they are, right? And so... The boys are following, and now all the groups are headed back to the convention center, so they all find us. So there's several hundred kids, and we're quickly signing their little programs and giving them back. And then all of a sudden, I wasn't signing programs anymore. I was signing receipts. I was signing T-shirts. I was signing ball caps. One lady asked me to sign her forehead. And I looked up, and as far as the eye could see, people had gathered to get our autograph. You see what happened? A guy stopped his car in the middle of traffic, right? People honking at him to get in line to see who the famous people were that were signing autographs for these hordes of screaming teenagers. I'm going to go ahead and confess. It might have been one of the top 10 moments of my life. (laughs) It's pretty fun to be famous for like 10 minutes. It was also kind of funny to see their disheveled face when they realized we were nobody, right? And they'd been waiting around to get our autograph. So the setup, of course, is this. It was a perfect storm of circumstances that created an illusion. We were not famous. We were not worthy of signing autographs, right, or any of those things. In a similar way, A generation has come through the church, and there was the perfect illusion that we were being successful at discipling them. My generation, Generation X, we were the most church generation in the history of the Protestant church. Now, 30 years later, we are the least church generation. What happened? Christian Smith, a sociologist, he was at the University of North Carolina at the time. He is now at Notre Dame. He did some research, took a lily-endowed grant and researched the spiritual lives of American teenagers for four years, spent $4 million to do it, wrote a book in 2006 called Soul Searching in which he outlined the reality that for all the money, effort, intentionality we put into bringing kids into our churches and our programs, it had failed to produce a robust discipleship in their life. Translation, kids were biblically illiterate. They could not tell you even the basics of the gospel. And what their beliefs were were really what's called moral therapeutic deism. That's the the term that he coined. And that it's morality, it's therapy because they go to church because it makes them feel good. And it's deism in that they believe in a God, but not the God of the Bible. Following Gen X has been the millennials. The millennials will flat out tell you that they have no spiritual affiliation. A third of them, when surveyed, will tell you what the sociologists call that say they're nuns, right? We have no religious beliefs whatsoever. Sadly, when I read that, it reminds me of the book of Judges where it says a generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for his people. So they were unable to resist the cultures that were all around them. The end of Judges says it was a day in which everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Does it feel like that today? Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes. Why? Because there's no foundation. Because even our young people who have come through church, they didn't know really what they believed or why they believed it. So this burdened me as a youth pastor, as an next-gen pastor, as a pastor, 
to drive into the heart of why. And we kept finding God bringing us back, right? That the way forward in the church was actually the way back to timeless biblical principles. That you can't outsource spiritual formation to a youth group. You can't outsource it to the government. You can't outsource it to a school or a ball team. Instead, it is God's home surrounded by God's church that leads to lasting faith in a generation. It's a passage in the Bible that was formational for God's people. Jesus himself quoted it. It's Deuteronomy chapter six. You've already recited it today, but we're gonna look at it in depth as we begin this four-week journey in Deuteronomy. Will you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read? Deuteronomy chapter four, uh, chapter six, verses four through nine. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Dear Jesus, you knew these words well. You recited them from the time you were a little boy. That first word, Shema in Hebrew, hear, listen, pay attention. I pray that your spirit would grip our hearts today. And for all the competing priorities, we would realize that you taught us there is one great command to love you with everything we've got. And that everything flows from that. That from us to the next generation will flow our priorities, our focus, our life. And so may that life be hidden with you. And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So the book of Deuteronomy is a very important book, just like all of Scripture. But it is sadly overlooked It is literally the second law, that's what the name means, because the book of Leviticus lays out the law, written primarily to the priests, right? But the book of Deuteronomy was written to people like you and me. It was written to lay people. It was the set of farewell discourses or sermons that Moses gave to God's people as they're camped on the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan River into the promised land. It's his last lectures. It's a series of kind of three sermons and kind of three big buckets. What God has done, what God expects of you now, right? And what God is going to do in the future. And these sermons were designed to root God's people, to help them understand their identity as his chosen people, to understand what God's priorities are. And so this passage is crucial. Orthodox Jews still recite it to this day several times every day. Jesus himself, as I mentioned a moment ago, would have recited this prayer several times every single day. As a matter of fact, it's interesting because we know that out of all the books that Jesus quoted, he quoted Deuteronomy a lot. As a matter of, spe- as a matter of fact, specifically in the temptations in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, many of us are familiar with the fact that when tempted, Jesus refuted the temptation of Satan with what? Scripture, using Bible verses. What a lot of us don't realize, because we haven't dug deep enough, right, is to realize that all of those verses come from one place in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy. So here's a question that challenged me this week. What if our ability to resist temptation was dependent 
on having the book of Deuteronomy hidden in our heart. It's challenging, isn't it? But Jesus modeled that for us. And so we too lean into the book of Deuteronomy because it gives us God's priorities. So four words today that mark God's priorities for his people. I actually want to go back up to to verse one to catch this. Word number one is covenant. We always start with God and his promises. And in chapter six, verse one, it says this, this is the command. Notice the definite article setting us up. Translation, here is the first and greatest priority. You do this, everything else will fall into place as well. This is the command. And I don't know about you, but especially today with all the issues we face, it seems like things grow increasingly complex. I need clarity. I need simplicity. I need the fundamentals. And so I love it that it says this is the command. Start here. The statutes and ordinances the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you're about to enter and possess. You see, God always has a plan for his people. God's in the future. We are not. But God knows what we need. So there's a reason that you're here today because God is preparing you for what you need later today, later this week, later this month, later this year. But God is always equipping his people with the truth that they need to engage what's next ahead of them. This is what the Lord has commanded me to teach you so that you may follow them in the land you are about to enter and possess. Of course, that was the promised land. You do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all of his statutes and commands I am giving you, your son and your grandson, so that you may have a long life. Now, this fear of the Lord, of course, isn't the kind of fear that runs away from God, but instead it is a healthy respect and reverence that says, God, I care about what you think more than I care about what anybody else thinks, more than the culture, more than the voices around me, more than anything else. I want to please you in your commands. So this fear, right, leads us to run to God's commands, to the keeping of God's decrees. Why? Because we know that he cares for us. We know that as the orchestrator and the giver of life, when we follow and obey his ways, right, then generally we will flourish as his people. It doesn't mean that life's always going to be easy, but it means that life is going to be good on God's terms of what good is. And so he says this matters. And this is interesting that right here he weaves in, I'm giving these to you, your son, and your grandson. This idea that the decisions that you make today, the priorities that you hold today are going to have a ripple effect that far outlasts you. I think one of the Satan's greatest tools in our generation is to get us distracted and completely focused on the here and now. That's why sabbatical for me as a pastor is such a gift because I get to be focused. I get to chase down a thought. I get to be present with my kids on a mission trip. I get to be present in my thoughts with the Lord. I get to focus. Why? Because so many times our phone buzzes, right? We're distracted. We're running from one thing to the other on our calendar every day, and we don't get to focus. But the decisions that we make now, if we could zoom out, how do those impact the world 20 years from now, 50 years from now, 100 years from now? What will matter then, church? Look around you, the children seated next to you, The young ones who are back in our preschool ministry are here in the room with us. They are going to be the ones, right, to carry on 
what we believe. They're going to carry the torch. And so right here, Moses is reminding them that your priorities, what you set before them right now as an example, isn't just about what happens right now. It's about what happens in the future. Verse three, hear and heed, listen Israel and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord, the God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. You see, God is good. His promises are good. And we need to start with this word covenant for this reason. We are not saved by making promises to God. We are saved by believing God's promises to us. Amen. What God has done is the most important thing of all. And on this side of the covenant, in the new covenant, we know God has sent his son We know that God says he's paid the price for us on the cross, that he has conquered sin and death in the resurrection so that every man, woman, boy, and girl who turns from their sin and themselves to Jesus as Savior can be reconciled to God forever. That's the gospel, and that's what we believe and put our trust and our hope in, not in ourselves, not in our ability to do these things, because what we're about to talk about can turn to legalism if we don't realize that that's the place that it's coming from, by believing God's promises to us. And this leads us to our second word this morning, which is confession, that there is one God and we turn to no other. Here, the word Shema. In Hebrew, means listen, pay attention. Do I have your attention, please, right? Here, Israel, you're about to move into a land in which there are going to be idols, in which there are going to be temptations, in which there are going to be cultures who follow other gods. Don't do it. Those gods cannot give life. They only take it. So hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a unique word in Hebrew that means unity, right? Speaking of the Trinity, and it means uniqueness. There is no God like our God. Now, we can all look at that verse and read it, and we'd all say amen, right? Yeah, there's no God like our God. As a matter of fact, turn to your neighbor and say, there is a God, and you're not him. Okay, just always. We do that often here. Why? It's a simple and a humble confession. We just need to level set sometimes to recognize that there is a God. We are not him, but the reality is, is we have a world when we walk out of these doors that's going to tempt us with all of its idols, with all of its shining things, with all of its mantras of success and be this and do that. What God is grounding in his people is that if you turn any other direction but me, know that those idols will only take life. They will not give life back to you. There is one God. We turn to no other. There is one fixed reference point. And so part of the problem we have today is that we have no reference points. Because we think whatever we believe, our truth, however we've constructed it, is God-like, God-worthy, right? That we really are little gods, then we live eccentrically because we live like we are the center of the universe. And yet we are not. And so you understand how our world can't get along, how our world breaks down, because everybody thinks, right? That their version of the truth, really, they are making themselves into gods. And therefore, everybody should think like they do, act like they do, etc. What this passage is declaring is, no, there is one way. Our God is a unity and he is unique. And this leads us to what we do in response. Word number three, commandment. Love God with everything you've got. Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, 
and with all your strength. Again, fundamentals. If you've lost your way, if you're here today, if you're like, I don't know where to start right, with Christianity, if you're like, I'm fumbling around, I, I know I'm headed down a path that's not good, start here. As a matter of fact, it's fascinating. There were people, and rabbis and scribes, lawyers, who in Judaism literally broke down the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, and came up with 613 commands. The rabbis of the first century were in an argument. Some of them said this command should be number one. Some of them said it was number two, believe it or not. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to see how Jesus settled this rabbinical debate. And so Mark chapter 12, verse 28, hundreds of years after Moses gave these words, the scholars and their ivory towers of Israel are debating about which laws are the most important. So one of the scribes, it's a lawyer, approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked of him, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar to anybody? You see, when I was a kid growing up in church and I read this story, covered it often, I just thought, well, Jesus is God. So, boom, he just gave the best answer ever, dropped the mic, right, and walked away. I didn't realize then that Jesus was reciting a passage that he had recited ever since he could remember as a young boy. You see, it was impressed upon him. And in this moment of confusion and doctrinal questions, right, Jesus says, this is it. This is the big command. And he said, the second is like unto it, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other command greater than these. The scribe, and this is kind of hilarious to me because I don't think he fully understood who Jesus was, said to him, you are right, teacher. Thank you, Captain Obvious, right? Telling Jesus that he's right. You have correctly said that he is one and there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart and all your understanding and all your strength and to love your neighbor yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you were not far from the kingdom of God. Like you're, you're on the right track, right? You got it here. Now you've got to get it here and you got to get it here and you've got to apply it. But this is awesome to me. And it says, and no one dared to question him any longer, right? Because this is Jesus. But my point is this. Jesus knew that this was the greatest commandment because everything else flows from here. This is where we begin. In biblical times, it was very common to use parts of the body, right, for word pictures. And so if you talk about the head in Scripture, right, headship, that means leadership. If you talk about the arm, right, that generally means strength. Here it says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And to us today, our culture has conditioned us to think that the heart is just emotions. But that was not true for the Hebrews. They believe the heart included your emotions, but also your intellect, your ability to think. That's why by the time we get to the first century, Jesus elaborates for the Greek thinkers who were there. It's why he adds mind there to make it clear. But heart to a Jew included both their emotions, but more importantly, their critical decision-making skills. So love God with all you've got intellectually and emotionally. That's what it means when it says love him with all your heart. Love him with all your soul. This was a metaphor for the wholeness of God's people. It literally means throat or gullet. But what it means is, is your whole person. So our mission statement is a church engaging the 
whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what this implies, is the soul meant the totality of your being. And then strength is the Hebrew word for muchness. You give it all that you've got. So your inner self, your outer self, everything that you've got, all of your strength, you are living your life in such a way that it demonstrates a love for God, that it's what oozes out of you. It's not compartmentalized to just church or just Bible study time. It's not compartmentalized to just your gospel conversations, but rather it is a way of life. These commands are to be upon your heart. And let me say this loud and clear. You cannot pass down what you do not possess. Let me say it again. You cannot pass down what you do not possess. Now, by God's grace, does he work in the lives of future generations? Yes, okay? But as a parent, grandparent, as a mentor, as a disciple maker, if you think you're going to lead someone deeper than you are spiritually, then you are mistaken. The Bible makes that clear because disciple making is taught. There's a time for formal instruction, but it is also caught. The title of this series, Influence. You have influence on everyone who's watching your life. And guess who watches your life microscopically? Your kids, your grandkids, those who are in your home. And so influence, we know we're influencing. We are discipling a generation when we choose what we watch on Netflix. We are discipling a generation when we choose where we spend our money. We are discipling a generation when we choose what we prioritize with our time. That's what Moses is telling the people and so he's saying, for you, your love for God needs to burn white hot if you expect the next generation to see it, which is the next word. For Our fourth word is communication. That you leave an impression through an intentional, repeated action that loving God is a way of life. This word, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, this first word, repeat, is a rare word in the original language. And so anytime you see a rare word, you need to lean in and ask what it means. The word repeat literally means to impress. It carries with it a word picture. One of the commentaries I say uh, that I read uh, says it means to impress with indelible sharpness and precision. I love that. The word picture that's associated with it is that of a sculpture. So I brought with me a hammer and a nail that'll serve as a chisel for my purposes because I am no sculptor, right? If you put a block of rock in front of me, I wouldn't know where to start. But the word picture that's here in Deuteronomy is literally that of you love God. And with the next generation, from the time that child is born, you begin to chip away, right? To form faith in them, to leave an indelible mark to shape out in their life what it means to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Michelangelo, the famous, famous Renaissance artist, not Michelangelo, the Ninja Turtle, let's just make that clear, right? Michelangelo said this about his sculpting. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. Man, that is beautiful. But like I said, I am no artist, right? So I have no idea or ability to see the angel in the marble. But what I do know is here's God's word and I can impress that in the life of my kids. Now, don't overcomplicate this. So let's use a simple example, right? There are all things that we want to teach our kids from the time that they are young. For example, the value of brushing their teeth, right? Oral hygiene is important. 
We know when they're little that those cute little teeth they have, that they're going to fall out of their head when they're five or six years old. But yet when they're little, we do what? We teach them the routine at nighttime of brushing their teeth. So we get some little fake toothpaste that's really more sugar than it is anything else, right? Say, say like bubble gum. We get them colored toothbrushes with like My Little Pony or, you know, Paw Patrol on them, right? So it kind of becomes this fun. And yet our kids do what? They resist. And so we're like, nope, we're not going to bed. No candy for you, right? Unless you brush your teeth. And you start to make that impression when they're young. As they get older, you make sure that it's a part of their routine, right? So, hey, if we brush our teeth before bedtime, why? Because we don't want those cavities, right? We don't want that expensive bill from the dentist. And so we impress it at every age and every stage. And then they get to be teenagers. And you really hope that they understand the importance of oral hygiene. You hope that at some point it breaks through that members of the opposite sex do not enjoy bad breath, right? And will not want to be near them. And so in a way, right, it shapes them a little bit more. And then just hypothetically say that your son goes off to youth camp and he comes back and your wife happens to ask him, hey, did you brush your teeth? He's 13 years old and you think maybe he brushed his teeth and he's like, um, I don't know where my toothbrush is, right? Just saying hypothetically that that takes place. And it's like, all right, here we go again. You pick up the hammer and the chisel, right? All right, hey, have we brushed our teeth tonight? Here we go. My point is clear, I hope, that at every age and every stage, with everything that matters, you have to repeat the same lessons over and over again. You have to do it deeper and deeper until it leaves a lasting impression. That's what Moses is teaching the people. That's what God is teaching us. And so it's interesting, right, that there are these opportunities that life gives us to be able to, to know what it's like to follow God. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road. Translation, when you're chilling at home, that's a good time to have a gospel conversation. That's a good time to answer their questions. Or when you walk along the road, not many of us walk anymore, but for us, it's when we drive in the car. You have that captive audience, don't you? It's a great time to have those conversations. But whether you're inactive or active, all of life is about pointing back to what it means to love God. First thing in the morning, last thing at night. All of life is about teaching the next generation what it means to pursue God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. There is a personal ownership of this. And it's debated among scholars whether or not this was metaphorical or literal. But a lot of Jews took it literally. They have little boxes they put on their wrists and their foreheads called phylacteries. It says, bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Translation, you have to own it with your head, with your heart, and with your hands. But there's also the public declaration of this is the way we live our lives. Write them on the doorposts of your house. So Jews literally do this, right? They take this writing, they roll it up in a little scroll, and they affix it to their doorposts of their home. It's hard to say. And so every time anybody enters and leaves, they see it there. This house is marked by what? This is a home that loves God with everything that they've got. And on your city gates, in our community. So there's a public display of this as well. And all of this, look with me at verse 20 of this passage, leads us to this idea. When your son asks in the future, what is the meaning of all of these things? You can tell him why. Not if your son asks, but when the next generation looks at you as parent, grandparent, as leader in the church and says, why is the world this way? Why is my grandma sick? Why 
do bad things happen to good people, right? When they ask these questions, why? You are equipped and ready with the answer. Because you, from the time they are little, you have impressed upon them one step at a time what it looks like to know God and to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let's get practical with this. What does this look like, right? We know what it looked like for Jesus and the people in the first century. What does this look like for us today in 2022? Well, as a part of a movement of churches that are really seeking to recover these biblical principles, we call them family equipping churches. I get to rub shoulders with a lot of smart guys. I get to do conferences with a lot of smart guys. One of those guys, his name is John Dennard, and he blogs at kidmenscience.com. He is a chemistry teacher who became a children's pastor, and he's done a lot of research. His research that says this, put this on the screen for you, that about 75% of kids who are currently young adults left the church from ages 18 to 29. 25%, however, stayed. And somebody in my shoes, I've read endless books, articles, blogs about the 75% and why they left. But I like John's approach. He said, let's take that 25% and let's ask why they stayed. And he came up with five unifying factors. I want to walk these down because I want you to see how practical these are. This is how we practice Deuteronomy 6 in our day and age. Number one is this. They ate dinner five out of seven nights a week as a family. Huh, that's interesting, right? You would think it's like, they had formal Bible study, you know, nine times a week. You know, they memorized entire catechisms together. One of the unifying principles for kids whose faith was strong was their family was together. They ate meals together. As you know, all throughout Scripture, the eating of meals is an important time. Why? Because it's when God's people find their identity. They have their activities during the day. They come together. They talk about their day. Perfect time to talk about how God is in the everyday. Current events. What happened at school. What happened at work. For those who are successful in imparting faith in the next generation, they are intentional. Now I know, okay, again, this isn't legalism. Some of you are in situations where it's impossible, literally impossible for you to eat together five out of seven nights a week. You find time to be intentional. That's the point. That's the point. But on the other hand, as parents often tell me, well, you know, we don't want to have the time because we're running here and we're running there. And I was like, yes. And when you do that, you are discipling your kids in a certain way. When you fill your lives with all activities and events, you are teaching and training a kid that that's more important than togetherness. So be intentional, find that time. Factor number two is this. They served with family members in a ministry. They served alongside of other members of their family. So they realized, right, this is what we do together. As I said, ministry, disciple-making is caught as well as it is taught. And so as they serve in ministry together, it's why I love our missions team. They put together all kinds of projects in which you, your kids, your grandkids, the neighbor kids can jump in and participate. We have mission journeys as a family where we can serve together. There are ministries that are ongoing in this church that enable us to serve alongside of one another. I love it when I see some of our ushers who have their kids right beside them as they pass the offering plate. In the past, we've seen kids, some of our young people in the parking lot alongside of their parents. And so it's a beautiful picture of what it means to lead and serve together. And that's important for faith formation. Number three, factor number three is this. They had a weekly spiritual experience in the home. He words that broadly on purpose. 
might be a devotion, right? It might be a prayer time. It might be it's the singing, gathering together around the piano and singing some hymns. But whatever it is, there's intentionality in the home so that kids learn we don't just talk about the Bible at church. We do it in our everyday lives as well. So at least once a week, they had a spiritual experience in the home. And then number four, they are entrusted at a young age with ministry responsibility. My years as youth pastor, I began to notice this. Kids who got to that 16, magical age of 16 years old when they drive and they begin to vote on what they want to be a part of. If we didn't engage them in owning ministry, right, they would begin to drift away from engagement in church. But instead, if we gave them ownership of parts of ministry, hey, why don't you mentor some middle school kids? Hey, why don't you come alongside of this serving ministry in the church? We began to see that engagement ramp up. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories from this summer was, you guys know, at Vacation Bible School, we had 300 volunteers. You may not know that almost 100 of those were our teenagers. You see, that's important because they are learning to minister alongside, and at the same time, they are being entrusted And I love to see what God does as he begins to light that flame in the heart of a young person who says, I can be used by God for something. And then factor number five is this. They had one, one faith-focused adult in their lives. And that's where every single one of you in this room comes into play. Because I know there's some of you, you're like, I don't have kids at home anymore. I don't even have grandkids who live close to me. What can I do? Here's what you can do. Be that voice that comes alongside of their parents to tell them that faith matters, to live it out in front of them. It's why it's important that we serve in our next generation ministries. It's why it's important that this generation has spiritual mentors and champions. I was raised in a great Christian home, but let's be honest, when I was a teenager, I began to think my parents were a little crazy. We all go through that phase, don't we? You're raised right in church and you just reach that point. You begin to critically think and you begin to think, do I believe this because I believe it or just because my parents do? Well, guess what I had? I had a youth minister and I could go over and hang out at his house and I could ask him questions about the Bible. I could talk to my small group leader about, you know, girls and things I didn't feel comfortable talking to my parents about at the time. And as I was trying to work those things out, how, what does the Bible have to say about dating? What does the Bible have to say about my future? And so that one research shows in addition to parents, that one faith focused adults in their lives makes a massive impact in the life of a young person. And that's where we do this together as a church family. It's why when we dedicate those precious babies, We all stand up and we're a part of that commitment moment as a church because we are pledging to come around that family. So there are so many good things here, but I want you to hear that practically it's about being intentional, influence with intent. You're having influence on the next generation. What kind of influence are you having? Love Pastor Tony Evans. Listen to his sermon on this passage this week. And he said these words, I want to repeat them to you because they're powerful. He says, here's my thesis this morning, and it's absolutely critical. Maybe this is the most or one of the most important things I've ever said. What Moses tells the children of Israel is that if you want to survive in the promised land, if you want to make it in the promised land, if you want to experience the best of the promised land, it's got a lot of mess in it, by the way. The home has to be the primary place where faith is transferred. Let me say that again. It's the family, not the government. It's the family, not the public school. It's the family, not even the church alone. He tells them as leader of the people, if you're going to make it in the promised land, it's going to be made in your house. Will you bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of response? 
I know it's challenging, but I pray that you're also encouraged because when we're authentic, God uses that. God uses that. And I know that today there are some of you walking through this, and I pray the Spirit has convicted you that the place to start is this. You have to believe the promises of God. You have to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so for some of you, that's where it begins today. So would you turn from your sin and yourself, your focus on yourself, and to your love for a Savior who came to rescue you, to redeem you, to give you hope and a future. And then from there, flowing out of your obedience to the commands, the sweet commands of God, comes your ability to be authentic, to pass down what you possess, to as you walk with God, form and shape faith in that next generation. And so today, for all of us in this place, I'd love for us to just make a simple commitment as we begin this four-week focus, as we start this new season of the school year and of our lives, to say, I want to be a part of passing the promise to the next generation. You may be a parent, grandparent, you may be just a mentor, you may be an aunt, uncle, whatever it is, there are young people that God has put around you, and they need, they need to see an example of faith. They need to see how you take the Bible and apply it to everyday situation. They need a safe place to ask questions and grapple with what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in a dark and broken world. So today, if you are willing to, to say, I just, I wanna pass that promise. Would you very quietly just slip up your hand and just put your hand out like you're literally passing that on to the next generation? Just do that today, amen. Praise God, yeah. Thank you, amen. Yeah, praise God. I wanna be a part of passing that promise. Lord, would you use me? And would you lean in, especially these next, next four weeks, as we look at how God taught his people to know who they are so they, they could be faithful one generation after the next. Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you that by quoting this passage, you called our attention to it in such a way that we don't have to go out and invent ways of teaching the next generation to love you, but instead we have to love you first. And out of the overflow of that love comes our ability to point the next generation to you. So you are faithful, God. Would you find us faithful to pass that promise? And it's in your name we pray these things. And all God's people said, amen. Stand with us as we sing in response.